celebrating 10 years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Violet Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana. This is the second time we're doing this. Uh, we, the devil, has been fighting us uh, on this podcast. But uh, this is Brian Chilton, Curtis Evelo, with you. Uh, we, you are a part of the Bellator Christie podcast, and we're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, we are coming to you from all across the world, and as Curtis mentioned uh, prior to us going live, uh, we're just amazed in our prayer time. He mentioned we're just in awe of uh, the people worldwide who are joining us, uh, Australia, uh, India, Pakistan, and all, all points in between. And so we're just blessed and honored to be celebrating 10 years uh, podcasting ministry, and we're so glad that you're with us along for the ride. Guys, I've got to be doing something great through this podcast moving forward because we have been met with all kind, kinds of technical difficulties uh, <laughs> coming our way. This past month, so so we we're just trusting God's going to do something yep. great uh, with this ministry moving forward, and we and we know that He is. We're we're coming to you live a little bit uh, later later if you're watching the live stream than we normally do. I was blessed and honored to be part of a memorial service hosted by the hospice agency that I work for. Uh, they they do it every year, and there was there were four memorial services: two in Virginia, two in North Carolina. And I was uh, proud to be part of the one in Mount Airy. And we had a beautiful service at a Moravian church and um, there in, in, in uh, Mount Airy. And, um, you know, even though, and this kind of speaks to the, the difficulties we've been having with podcasting the past uh, few weeks. Even though the night was rainy, dreary, it was, it's just a nasty night tonight here in, here in, uh, in the northwestern uh, section of North Carolina. Just a nasty night. And I went to the church. And I thought to myself going in, I thought, oh, man, no one's going to show up tonight. But we actually had a very good crowd show up. And as I entered the sanctuary, as dark and dreary as it was, the, the church had, had a handmade Moravian star with 132 points to the star. Handmade. They lit it up. They light it up during the Advent season going into Christmas. And as dark and dreary as it was on the outside, the beauty and light of God shone through that place. It was just an amazing service tonight. And so I was blessed and honored to be part of it. Uh, and so I'm blessed and, be on, and honored to be part of this podcast tonight with you guys. And uh, we hope that you're doing well wherever you may be. We are starting a brand new theology series on soteriology, uh, which is going to take us a while to get through. And there's some deep, deep topics that we have uh, to discuss. But so before we dig into that, Curtis, my brother, how are you doing, my friend? Yeah, doing all right. Yeah, boy, the it, this has been uh, past couple of weeks. We've both been just kind of struggling getting getting things uh, going in this. It just uh, it seems like uh, every time we make advances in in what we plan on doing, the enemy comes and tries to strike it down. So definitely, uh, if there's any listeners out there be praying real quick just for us as we as we keep going just try to stay away from the technical technical stuff that brian and i are probably not that swift at so well i'll be honest it, i shared it, if you by the way if you're not if you're not subscribed to the sword and shield uh, which is our uh, quarterly uh, newsletter it's absolutely free. All you have to do is uh, let us know your email address. We'll add you to the subscriber list. By the way, we had right. several people uh, to subscribe to the newsletter uh, this past uh, this past time, this past month. And so uh, we're really excited about that. But uh, if you follow the, the story, the article that I wrote, this whole thing, this whole ministry, it was out of my comfort level. I mean, I, I didn't know a lot about how to do a lot of this stuff, but God placed the right people in the right places at the right time to allow this ministry to get started and uh, to take off. So even with our technolo technological disabilities, 
yeah. God is still using yeah. us for what I hope is something great. Yeah, uh, and we hope that you're blessed uh, through this ministry, despite our little snafus. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. But uh, you know what? I've always been told, and I really believe it, that the devil doesn't bother people who's who he's already got in the palm of his hand. He only bothers people who uh, who are doing work for the Lord. So uh, yeah. it's almost, if you think about it, kind of a compliment, the fact that uh, the, the the enemy would would try to stop this. Uh, it means that we're doing something right. So at least yeah. that's what I'm going to go about. That's my story, right. and I'm sticking to it. Sticking to it. There you go. Yep. So, Brian, I think we ought to just jump right in on this, just um, kind of get, get this ball rolling. Um, so what do we mean by salvation, and what are the dimensions of salvation? Let me say a quick word right quick before we get started. Hello to Philip Atkins. He just posted on Facebook. Good to have both of y'all back tonight, and it's good to definitely have Curtis back with us tonight uh, and hope his family's doing well. We know they've had a rough go of it uh, the past couple of weeks, so definitely glad to hear everybody's doing uh, better. Um, so salvation comes from the word the Greek word soter, and it's kind of as we mentioned uh, before, uh, I, I don't know, remember if we mentioned this off the podcast or on the podcast, a lot of the words in, in theology, because we have a rich 2,000-year history, and the, the New Testament was written in Greek, a lot of the theological language we employ comes from Greek come from Greek, Greek terms. So even the word uh, salvation uh, or soteriology uh, comes from a Greek word soter, uh, which means to save. Uh, so salvation involves our relational status with God. Now, again, if you think of logos being the logic or the study of something, soter meaning salvation, soteriology means the study of salvation. And so, um, so salvation, Christian theology teaches that our relationship with God was first broken due to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Our rebelliousness continues with each subsequent generation. And since God is pure holiness, something must be done to correct our relational status with God. And so salvation involves correcting that broken relational status. Now, as we go through this, we're going to see that people have different views of what relational status was broken and how one goes to, to resolve that issue. And so when we talk about the dimensions of salvation in this in this preliminary show on soteriology, we're talking about the different aspects of salvation, uh, different characteristics of salvation. And so tonight we're looking at the time dimension, which is part of salvation. When are we saved? Uh, does how does that uh, how does that timing apply in the future? We're going to look at things like the relational dimension. Uh, is salvation nearly focused on our relationship with God, or is it only focused on our relationship with others, or is there a combination of both somehow to a degree? There's the medium dimension, and here we're not talking about a psychic hotline or anything like that. Uh, the medium dimension, we're talking about what is the media, what what are the means by which God brings about that salvation, and the directional dimension of salvation, who saves whom, how much human involvement, how much divine involvement is involved. And so, yeah, I can see by your facial expression there, Curtis, we're going to come out of the gates running, galloping as soon as we, we come out uh, with this entry, uh, with this entry uh, podcast, this entry episode. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so you said the dimensions were, they, they were time, Relation, medium, and direction. Direction. And there may be a few others that we discuss, but those are going to be okay. the main four. Uh, okay. The time dimension, how, when are we saved? Uh, does, that, does that salvation continue? How does it apply in the present? How does it apply in the future? The relationship, the relational dimension, what relationships are impacted? The medium dimension, what is it that's used to bring about our salvation? Think of the word media uh, or, or you know, to what is used to, to bring about something. And then finally, the directional dimension, who saves whom and how is that how is that done? OK, my question is with the medium 
could we consider you know um natural like natural uh just the natural things we have in life or is it would it be something that's a direct communication or or what would that be these are more the tools that are used to bring about our salvation and uh and and let me just say that that this podcast is really going to serve as a launch pad to some other podcasts we're going to have so some of this material, we're going to rehash a little bit later on. Gotcha. Some of it's going to be fleshed out even further as we go through this entire series. So uh, we've got a lot coming up. We've got a lot coming up. Good, good. So in, uh, in his book, Christian Theology, Adam Harwood mentions 11 salvific concepts. What are those concepts and how do we relate our salvation and how do they speak to what we are saved from? You know, initially I wasn't going to put this in there, but I've been reading through Adam Harwood's book, Christian Theology. And um, I have to say that I'm actually enjoying going through it. Uh, it's a really good book. I, I, there were some things that I wish he would flesh out a little bit more just at a, at a cursory glance at it. But as I'm going through this book, it, it's really well done. And um, he mentions 11 terms of salvation or 11 salvific concepts. And, and we're not going to really go through all of this tonight, but I just want to present it out there since this is kind of an introductory uh, episode on soteriology, on the issue of salvation. I think, it's, I think it's important to mention these. The first term he uses is deliverance, that God delivers us. From the impact of sin, he delivers us from the, the clutches of of, um, of of sin in our lives. The second is an entrance into God's kingdom. Salvation brings about the whole concept in Scripture is to bring us into the kingdom of God. You don't have to wait right. to get the kingdom of God when you go to heaven. If you're a member of the covenantal community in Christ, you're already part of that kingdom. Now we are kingdom citizens. Right now, part of that heavenly kingdom. Uh, new life, that's the third. New life, the new life we have in Christ, the transformation he brings. Um, belonging to God's family is the fourth. This is uh, much akin to the entrance into God's fa- God's kingdom. But we're a part of a, of a big family. Uh, we're, we're this family. I mean, Curtis, you and I are brothers in Christ. Now, we don't have the same mother. But right. we're brothers. We do have the right. same bloodline. Right. They said, wait a minute, Brian, I know you're doing this genealogy, but how do you know we're, we're, we're part of the same bloodline? Because we're part of the bloodline of Christ. Right. We're yep. part of this huge family, uh, this, this family that's in heaven, the family that's now on earth, the, the, the family that is to come. We're part of this huge family of God. Salvation evokes uh, that uh, membership into that family. Uh, forgiveness of sin. Of course, this is self-explanatory, but a huge concept when it pertains to salvation. Reconciliation with God is the sixth concept he mentions, that we are reconciled. We're made right with God. Uh, redemption from sin, redemption from the clutches of sin's power over our lives and the punishment that it brings. Uh, sanctification is the eighth concept he mentions that we are being sanctified we have been sanctified we're being sanctified uh, made into the image of christ being set apart is what sanctify means to be set apart transformation again the transformation that god brings about in our lives as the old saying goes i'm not what i should be but praise god i'm not what i used to be god is molding us and shaping us into his image righteousness putting us on a righteous path, uh, and then participation, participating with uh, God in the kingdom work. You know, God could have done all this stuff by himself. He could go evangelize by himself, go disciple up by himself, go minister by himself. But he chooses to use that, use us in his ministry. It's an honor for us to be able to serve in the kingdom of God. And so we're able to participate in these things because of the salvation that God brings about in our lives. But so these 11 concepts, these biblical concepts we find pertaining to salvation, uh, they're mentioned by Adam Harwood, but I think they were absolutely exceptional 
the way he brings this out. And I think he's right. I think these are biblical concepts we find all throughout the pages of Scripture. So when speaking of salvation, you mentioned the aspect of time. How does time dimension relate to our understanding of salvation? So Scripture talks about um, us having been saved, being saved, and that we will be saved. So it enters into this dimension of time. And so the question is, well, which is true? Have we been saved? Are we being saved? Or will we be saved? Which of the three are true? Yes. Well, come to find out they're all true. They're, they're all part of that process. Mm-hmm. Uh, justification, and here we introduce, we're introduced to three terms. We're going to talk more about these. We're going to flesh these terms out more as we go through this series. The first one speaks to the past uh, portion of our salvation, and that is justification, that upon profession of Christ, we enter into that kingdom of God. And that means that we are justified with God, which means that we are made right Mm. in the image of God, in the mind of God. We All the debts have been paid. All the problems that have been worked through, we are right with God and that we are, we are, we are saved. That's what, that's what it means. So past, we can say we have been saved. At this point, our status moves from our existing in the state of God's judgment to the state of God's grace. Now, I believe God wants to bestow grace on everyone. And quite frankly, I do think he shows grace to everyone. But as far as the end result, we've moved from the camp of being under judgment to the camp of being under divine grace. Now, um, does God approach humanity in a loving fashion as he tries to bring them to salvation or does God hate humanity before this moment? Some people believe that God despises humanity. Well, that's not what we find in the pages of scripture. The Bible tells us that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I think God's love is implicated throughout the entire process. Uh, so, so justification marks the moment that God moves our relational status from being under the stage of judgment to the state of forgiveness and divine grace. But now the scripture also talks about us being saved in the present tense. What's that about? Well, here we learn about another term called sanctification. Sanctification is an ongoing process for the life of believers. Evangelicals differ on on whether or not this process can be completed on this side of eternity or not. John Wesley differs from Armenians and Calvinists as he thought that it could be completed to a degree before eternity, but his perspective needs to be nuanced because he didn't think that you could be perfect, but he thought that you could be so fine-tuned in the Spirit of God that you would choose not to willingly sin. Now, not all, even not all Wesleyans believe in that, but that was a perspective that Wesley presented. So again, that's that's one of the different positions we have in soteriology. Um, This is an area, I'll be honest, I struggle with this one. Uh, Even though I like a lot of what Wesley says, I really struggle with this. But uh, nonetheless, a person is transformed by God's ongoing cleansing process. And that ongoing cleansing transformative process is what we call sanctification. And then lastly, we see that scripture talks about we will be saved. So we have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. Well, what does that mean? Well, here, here's another term, glorification. Glorification speaks to the future salvation that is to come. A person's glorification comes in two, in two stages. First, a person is glorified when he or she enters into the spiritual domain of God. For clarity's sake, let's call this intermediate state between death and the resurrection. We'll call this paradise. The final state in our glorification comes when God gives us a new spiritual body, a glorified body. I think a quasi-physical body. I don't think it's a physical body like what we have now because 
I believe that our resurrected bodies will be much akin to, to Jesus's resurrection body. And that one was an amazing thing we see in the pages of scripture. I mean, he could just go through walls, but yet he could eat broiled fish. I mean, he could touch things and it's just an amazing thing. And if our spiritual body is like that, it's going to be 10 times better, a hundred times better, a million times better than this physical body we have now. Mm-hmm. So when we receive that new glorified body, when we when we are redeemed uh, from the judgment seat, when we have been marked forgiven in the final state, we've been glorified. We're going to receive a brand new body that's unlike anything we've ever seen or experienced. And so that's all part of that future glorification. So three terms throwing out at you. One justified justification. We've been made right with God in the past. The moment we received Christ as our savior. Sanctification is an ongoing process where God is molding us and shaping us into Christ's image. And glorification is the future tense of salvation, which means that we will be made in the image of Christ. We will be at home with God for all eternity in that spiritual state and ultimately in that resurrected state uh, in the end. Yeah. And, I, you know, you hear the you hear that term. Uh, we're justified and, and you can break that down as just as if I'd, uh, never sinned. It, it, that's how God looked. <laughs> I've never heard that. I like that. Just as if I, and then, and then, uh, and then, you know, sanctified, it's just the, the, the process of, of God refining us, getting the dross off of the gold so mm-hmm. that once we are with him, we are as of pure gold glorified. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, and that glorification will, will be, will be glorified. Um, if you think about the, the, the body of Christ, he was resurrected. He had a glorified body. He was, he ascended into heaven. So we're really going to follow the similar path. Uh, we're going to be resurrected. We're going to be ascended into heaven to, so to speak, uh, because when Christ comes, First uh, Thessalonians tell us we're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. It's kind of being caught up, ascended into heaven. So that glorification process, what an amazing thing that's going to be. Yeah. And we were talking about that oh, a couple of weeks ago, I think you and I were talking about, you know, our new bodies, what we'd be able to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know? um, you were saying, you know, you'd think uh, – whole lot of new records may be getting set, uh, you know, with that new body. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Yeah. So uh, what is the relationship or relational dimension of salvation? And is salvation cons- concerned primarily with the, the, the severance of our relationship with God? Or is it focused on our relationships with others? That's interesting. So, so the relational dimension is really a heavy topic when it comes to soteriology. And this isn't one of the areas that we hear as much about. Uh, but the relational dimension speaks to which relationships are truly healed. Uh, the traditional viewpoint is that salvation primarily heals our vertical relationship, that is our relationship yeah, with God. Yeah, there you go. But what about horizontal relationships, our relationships with each other? That is the broken relationships that people have with each other and with society, in, in society. Most certainly sin has wreaked havoc on our, on our culture. I mean, Curtis, I, I was talking about this tonight with some others. And then last night when we had uh, Mark Phillips with us, uh, uh, we talked about this, talking about the anger and hostility people have mm. these days. I mean, people driving down the road, and they'd run you off the road and, yeah. and wave at you. I mean, it's awful. Uh, people are just so angry. Wave? Wave at you? Wave, not, the, not the California salute. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but they probably want – these days, they give you the California salute more than they would the oh. – and if you don't know what the California suit is, uh, salute is, uh, ask us after the podcast. We can <laughs> it's the finger. That's what. <laughs> How California got identified with that, I don't know. But uh, but but there's different there are different theories on this. So uh, the traditional viewpoint is that uh, that this just a vertical relationship that's healed. 
our relationship with God. Liberation theologies um, hold that in the social gospel, they focus on the maladjusted behaviors of people or, or the sinful behaviors of a society. That's the main focus. It's on healing that horizontal relationship. So in a sense, if you, it's believed if you heal that horizontal relationship, in some sense, you've healed that vertical relationship uh, to some degree. Uh, these movements believe that God can heal the brokenness of society. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, and, and this is really, and I, I'll just say this, this really comes into play with a lot of our political mindsets these days, that that by politics that we're going to heal the brokenness of the culture, or we can evoke some type of new system by politics. But can we truly bring, the question is, can we truly bring healing to the nation by politics alone? And that's a big that's a big question mark with social, the social gospel, with a lot of the political movements uh, these days, uh, and not even not even just liberal uh, viewpoints. I mean, it, it can be found in some conservative circles as well. Yeah. Um, so, whether it's the nationalists on the on the on the conservative side, or it's the liberal liberal agenda on the the progressive side, uh, in a sense, they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to bring about change using politics. Another view of salvation concerns internal relationships. Uh, the relational gospel looks to uh, provide individuals healing through prayer and meditation. It's about healing yourself from within. Uh, it uses self-understanding and acceptance within each person. And some, some, some self-help and new age groups focus really on this internal relationship that you're not who you are because of some broken relationship you have that needs to be healed within. Well, traditionally, the evangelical perspective, not political perspective here, I'm, when I use evangelical, I'm talking about the theological perspective only. Traditionally, the, the biblical evangelical perspective is that, well, let me just say the biblical perspective, in my opinion, holds that once the vertical is healed, then all other relationships can be healed because it's through that Holy Spirit of God that we can find healing and that ultimately in the end, ultimately in the end, the society will be healed, mm -hmm. but it's not going to come by a political movement. It's going to come by the all, all empowering um, kingdom of God that the Prince of peace will establish peace once and for all. Mm -hmm. Perfect peace is not going to come on this earth until Christ rules and reigns. Uh, whenever that kingdom is actualized in all of creation at the end. So these are at least some of the relational aspects of salvation. And there's a whole lot more. And we're probably going to revisit this uh, as we move through the series. I can, I can see both sides of that though, Brian, you know, the, the vertical to me, getting the vertical right uh, does help um, being able to see the sensitivities that need to be uh, given and helps helps people um, look at people in a different way. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's it's just helps in that. Um, but I can also see that trying to work through the horizontal, uh, it, it allows you to maybe see. Um, I guess I guess God moving through some of these, some of those avenues and aspects, um, drawing people in. So I, I could see both. Well, and see the, what you mentioned though is important. It's important, important thing to uh, realize is that, that once the vertical is healed, then the horizontal can be healed. And, and so in my, in my understanding of scripture, true peace I mean, there's going to be a false peace that the Antichrist is going to try to bring about. So he's going to promise peace, but he's just duping everybody into his agenda. Ultimate true peace is not going to come until Christ rules and reigns from on high, until the kingdom of God is actualized. And ultimately, in the end, 
uh, when we talk about the millennial reign of Christ, we're getting into eschatology here. Uh, but, but then you also have the new creation and you have the new earth. And that is when we truly finally have peace. Um, but to your point, I, I would also agree that I think that the vertical flows into the horizontal, if that makes sense. And so I think that once we, as, as children of God, have a right relationship with God, then we can evoke change into our culture and into our relationships, into the brokenness of society as the spirit of God really flows out. Um, I mean, that, that's my perspective. And, and I'm sure there are a billion other different interpretations. Out there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so what is the medium dimension of salvation and what are we saved by? So we're going to actually come back to this issue in episode 18 of this season when we discuss the different views of the mediums of salvation. Uh, but here I want to – so what we're really doing is we're kind of just taking a 10,000-foot a, a 10, um, view of the entire landscape. And you know we're in that airplane. We're looking down from an airplane looking at the landscape here. And we're going to come back and – and send the ground troops in to, to really plow through this a little bit more. So um, when we discuss the medium of salvation, we ask the question about what it means or, or, or what, let me say this again. We ask the question about what means are we saved through Christ or worded another way, through what means does Christ save us? And in Christian theology, there are three options. The first view is the physical medium of salvation. And here's where we find a great deal of Catholic theology, that it's through the sacraments that a person finds grace. And, and, and Curtis, you grew up Catholic, and if I'm getting any of this wrong, be sure to let me know. But my understanding is that, uh, that, the, the, that the Catholic tradition believes that we're saved through our faith in Christ, but the means by which this grace is applied is through the physical sacraments. And so you have the transubstantiation view so that when you take the bread and you take the wine, you're actually it's transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. And when you consume that, that grace is imparted to you by the, the, the participation with the physical sacraments. Does that sound fairly close to what? Yeah, yeah, and I've been out of that for so long, but um, I do believe there is a movement afoot that is uh, that is kind of um, leaning a little bit more, you could say, almost uh, um, to the point of believing that grace is applied through Christ. You know, just in the in the coming under the faithfulness and then it's maintained with that with the maintained through the physical so, sacraments so yeah. it's and it's been a long time since i've been involved with any of that and i would i i know i've heard many different aspects of that and and various people arguing different sides of that and and uh you know it's something that i just haven't kept up with um oh yeah that's yeah now, that's fair. But but even even with with what you were talking about too, maintaining that grace through the physical sacraments, um, then even even if the theology is, is by the faith in Christ, but initially it's applied, but it's maintained through the physical sacraments. There's there's still a a part of it that is applied or maintained or preserved through the continuation of the physical sacraments. And I think that's what is is really the, the the primary point in that is that that there is something physical that's brought about in in the uh, the means of grace that's applied to people, and that's really the first view. The second view is the moral medium of salvation, and here again, it's not to pick on social gospel theorists or liberation the, the, theologies, but it's important that we discuss this as we go through here. Go, go through this uh, here. Ad Adherents of this view believe that salvation is in some way achieved through moral social activism. And through moral social activism, uh, the means of God's grace is somehow in some way applied over to the society. Liberationists argue that salvation ultimately comes through 
social redemption and justice. Now, that's not to say that they don't believe that a person's redeemed by Christ uh, in some, in some, because um, you know, all of these, you may have different denominations that emphasize different things. And there may be some social gospel theorists would say, hey, wait a minute, Brian, we do believe in grace through faith. But the point is, is that the means by which, just as you mentioned with Catholic theology, it may initially be by grace through faith in Christ, but it's maintained through the physical sacraments. It may be that the emphasis here is that to truly show the grace of God on a culture, you have to work through uh, social injustices to bring about change in a society. So that's why social activism is very important in social uh, gospel theories. And the third view is the spiritual medium of salvation. And evangelicals in the true theological sense argue that salvation is spiritually applied by grace working through faith in a person's heart. Now, that's not talking about the physical heart. That's talking about the heart, meaning the cardia, meaning the, um, the, uh, the I think it's kavav in Hebrew, if I'm not mistaken. It's the totality of one's inner man, the totality of one's being. And so uh, when you're transformed from the inside out, from the heart flows out speech, flows out actions. When your heart is right with God, truly right with God, then it's, it's going to correct your, your speech. It's going to correct your social interactions. And so in many ways, I think the biblical perspective is that, that redemption comes through the spiritual, but in some sense, impacts and flows through these other eight avenues. So I think that there may be some areas um, not saying that the physical sacraments preserves us in the grace of God, but there may be physical things that can be redeemed and, and used for the glory of God, or maybe uh, that uh, that we as, as believers in Christ work to fight for justice and fight for these different things, these injustices that we see, that we stand up for the oppressed. That's a very biblical perspective. Seek justice, stand up for the oppressed, defend the widow's cause, um, seek truth. These are all very much biblical principles. But I think the primary mover, at least in my, in my theology, the primary mover comes by having that heart transformation coming from the Spirit of God, which can lead into some of these other avenues as as the Spirit truly works through His people. Hmm. Well, and it also states in the Scripture where the, the Holy Spirit connects with our spirit, and we are, we know through that we are, uh, we are saved, because there's a, there's a communication there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is the directional dimension of salvation? That is, who saves whom? Is salvation something that we do ourselves, or does it stem from someone or something else? Are you buckled up, Curtis? <laughs> we might better buckle up here. Yeah. So here we're we, we are getting into some deep stuff, friends. And uh, this may be a podcast. Curtis has often said that some of these podcasts you may want to go back and listen to again, take notes. I think this series is going to be one that you're going to want yep. to do just that. Sure. So there are there are several positions, but I'm going to give three for this for the sake of time. I'm going to give three. The reformed position, and so the question here again is whether we participate in salvation to any degree, and if so, what does that entail? The reformed position holds that salvation is completely a work of God with no human interaction whatsoever. Uh, this is more the Calvinist perspective. A person does not even respond to the gospel call in more determinist versions, but rather God completely saves a person by his complete effectual grace is completely fully a work of God without any human interaction whatsoever. And I apologize if you hear my cat in the background. He is going crazy today. I don't know if it's the weather or what it is. <laughs> if you hear meowing, he's fine. He's just him in the background. So the second view, which is completely reversed from the reform position, by the way, most mainstream Christians don't hold this view contrary to what some people say, is the Pelagian position. 
This was advocated in, uh, what was it, three, four hundreds, I think it was, no, in the four hundreds, I think it was, um, uh, in, in, that, in, that, in that time frame. Uh, Pelagian, Pelagius gate came into a big debacle with Augustine. And so, you know, the whole, you know, the whole theory, you know, you hold the uh, thing there. But Pelagius held that a person completely, and this is what makes his view heretical. Pelagius held that a person completely saves oneself by behaving in a moral, upright manner. In other words, Jesus set the model for our lives and it is completely up to each person whether he or she is saved if they live out a moral, upright life. So in other words, in the Pelagius' view, there's no divine grace bestowed upon a person. You just live a good moral life and you're saved. That sounds a lot like universalism. It does. And so there's no Armenian Wesleyan that I know of that holds that view. There's no provisionist. There's no... Uh, traditional Baptist, there's no one that I know of that holds that view. So this this accusation that so and so is Pelagian if they hold this or that view doesn't stand it doesn't it doesn't stand up to the historical doctrine that Pelagius taught. Um, surprisingly this model has gained a lot of traction in modern times, especially with new age beliefs. Uh, and, and in some liberation theologies, not all of them, but some uh, and even some Christian eschatological versions found in postmillennialism uh, even can advocate that if we do a good enough job as the church, then we can evoke the second coming of Christ just by what well, just by our actions. And that's why I have a hard time. That's why I have a lot of problems with postmillennialism. Um, so anyhow, that's the second view. And the third view is a mediating position. And I'm going to call this, this is a Brian Chiltonology. I'm going to use this term relational view. And this view holds that salvation is completely the work of God, but believers have the opportunity to respond or reject the grace of God that is freely given to them. And non-Calvinist Christians all hold this viewpoint. They believe that each person has the opportunity to respond to the grace of God, but this reaction in no way supplants the work of God in the process. And here we are, Curtis, we're very close to Christmas time. And if you think about this, think about the whole process of gift giving. So, Curtis, I'm sure you've gotten a gift. You've bought a gift for, for a member of your family. I'm going to use your wife, Chris. So you bought her a gift. You bought her a nice gift. Don't know what it is, but you bought her something really nice. You paid for it. Now, I don't know, your accounts may be in the same bank account, but let's just, for the sake of argument, pretend that you guys have two separate accounts. You paid for it with your own money. You purchased it. You wrapped it up. You put a nice shiny bow, and you give it to Chris at Christmas. And she has the opportunity, the freedom, to either reach out and receive the gift, saying, oh, thank you, Curtis, you're the best husband in the world, and, and receive the gift, or she has the she has the potential option to say, no, Curtis, I don't want it. You keep it. Now, either way, you paid for the gift. Curtis paid for the gift. Curtis wrapped it up. It is completely Curtis's work that brought about that gift. But it's Chris's uh, opportunity to respond or reject to the gift that's been freely given to her. And that's what non-Calvinists hold. They believe that there's a responsiveness to individual by individuals, but that in no way it means that they take credit for anything that's done with the whole process of salvation. They're merely, merely receiving a gift paid for, evoked, brought about, freely offered by God. It's just a matter of reception or rejection. And so that's the relational perspective. So those are the three primary viewpoints uh, when we talk about the relational dimension of salvation. There's a lot there. <laughs> now, let you me know. know when your Christmas time comes whether Chris receives or rejects the gift you give her. Got to buy one first, don't I? <laughs> Chris, if you're listening to this, uh, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> giving that one up. So, so here, here we're getting close to the end, Brian. So. I'm, I'm, let's 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 take some time here, and before concluding, let's let's give a basic assessment of the ideas involved with soteriology. 
you know, we're going to come from a certain perspective. You and I will. Um, can you give us a brief overview of the different soteriological positions and which one we hold and give us, you know, a roadmap or, or ideas for the episodes ahead? Sounds good. Um, so let me first of all give you a roadmap, and I'm going to have to pull up a different document here uh, for for the episodes coming ahead. Uh, so just remind me to do that in case, unless I forget. Yeah, yeah. Um, what we want to let, let me just go ahead and say, and, and Curtis and I prayed for this. We've been praying for this as we've we've come across uh, as we have come upon this soteria, this uh, this theological series. This aspect of theology is one of the most contentious in all the issues of theology that abound. Now, eschatology can get a little sticky in some areas, but really, if you want to get people really going, it's in soteriology that that happens. And so to to provide a roadmap, what we want to do is we want to just let you know that our goal in this series is to simply merely provide you the perspectives we have as non-Calvinists. We still hold that Calvinist brothers and sisters are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not saying that they're heretics. We're not throwing stones. We're not doing any of that stuff. And that's not the intention of this series. The theology series all about from, from top to bottom has been about training up people who are interested in um, in Christian theology. And maybe this series will eventually become a book for all we know. We don't know. We're just going right. to wait and see how the Lord moves. But this is, this is for educational purposes. We're going to give you our perspectives because if we didn't believe it, then we wouldn't promote right. it, you know. Right. So yeah. we're just... Yeah. Yeah, so Calvinist interpreters, they are free to, to give their own perspectives. We as non-Calvinists are going to provide our perspective. And so you know, we'll respect our Calvinist, interpreters, Calvinist brothers and sisters. We just ask that Calvinist brothers and sisters also bestow upon us the same respect that we give them. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, I was led to believe when I first started this theological journey, that there were only two options available, Calvinism and Arminianism. Come to find out that may have been a black and white fallacy or either or fallacy because there are many other options on the table outside of just those two. So as Calvinism is the viewpoint that stems from John Calvin and uh, the reformer from Geneva who wrote a book, found in his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion. And a lot of times his theology is summarized by the uh, acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, uh, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Um, Calvin held to a strong determinist position as he believed that God elected those who would be saved and those who were not to be saved without any human interaction, without any human, um, without the ability for anyone to repent or do otherwise. So God just elected some people he wanted to save from eternity past and some people he didn't. In many ways, his theology comes from that of Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century AD. Some have argued quite quite successfully, in my opinion, and in fact, there was a David Allen and Stephen Lemke, if I'm not mistaken, they have a new book out called Calvinism, a Theological Critique. And one of the writers argues that Augustine of Hippo may have brought in some of his Manichaean pagan philosophy when he was defending, uh, whenever he was defending his case against Pelagius. Because before Pelagius, the debate with Pelagius, Augustine was actually would be viewed more like a non-Calvinist. Uh, I mean, to use the, I mean, I know it's anachronistic to say Calvinist, but he would be like a non-determinist up until his debate with Pelagius. And then things changed for Augustine after that. But anyhow, that being said, uh, the whole philosophical, the whole philosophy of determinism in some ways uh, came in with Augustine's debate against 
against uh, Pelagius. So that's the first view. The second view is Thomism. Now, this is a Catholic viewpoint that came before the time of the Reformation, but it's very much a valid interpretation. Guys like Norman Geisler is a and he was an evangelical Thomist. One of our own team members, Dr. T.J. Gentry, is an evangelical Thomist. Uh, Thomists believe in the divine sovereignty of God, but they also believe in human freedom. And Thomas Aquinas really advocated primary and secondary causes. Now, to try to keep it as simple as I can, primary causes is the first cause that comes down, and that primary cause impacts everything it touches, leading to secondary individuals receiving that first um, primary source leads them to different things. So the best way to put it is that the sun that melts butter also hardens clay. The sun would be the primary source. Mm-hmm. When you think about it in terms of theology, the same grace of God that was bestowed upon Moses that softened his heart was the same grace that hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh chose to harden his heart and Moses chose to soften his heart. So there's a responsiveness that comes about. Uh, so that's Thomism. And there's a lot more. I mean, the man wrote over 15,000 pages. There's no way that you can summarize Thomism in a couple of sentences or a couple of paragraphs, but that you get the gist <laughs> of what Thomism is about there. Mm. Molinism, in my opinion, is takes Thomism to its logical end in some degree. Now, Molina didn't agree with everything that Thomas Aquinas wrote. That's why I'm kind of somewhere in the middle between Thomas Aquinas and Molina. Molinism, as you've heard about already in this, on this podcast, Molinism holds that God has middle knowledge, meaning that he knows what free creatures will choose to do, but his knowledge in no way impacts the freedom of that person to do this or that. So God is sovereignly working uh, through his middle knowledge, knowing what people will and will not do. Provisionism is the next, uh, is the fourth view. So we've got Calvinism, Thomism, Molinism. Provisionism is the fourth view. Light and Flowers has really advocated this position. This is really akin to the traditional Baptist viewpoint. Uh, in many ways, um, it's it's thoroughly Armenian. Now he does believe in um, light and flowers, at least from some, from my understanding. Unless he's changed, uh, he seems to hold to the viewpoint that salvation is secure, the security of salvation. Uh, so that's why I would link that as a different perspective than traditional Armenianism. So, uh, but outside of that, he's on key with everything. That Armenians believe. Classical Armenianism or remonstrant uh, theology comes from Jacob Arminius. And in this theology, it's believed that God in his foreknowledge knows what is going to happen. And through his foreknowledge, he chooses to save those whom he foreknows will respond to his salvation when it's freely offered. So he looks into eternity from eternity past into the future, knows how people are going to respond and elects to save those who um, receive him. Uh, then there's, but then here's with classic Armenianism, I need to make this point. Armenius believed that it may be, now he didn't say it, he absolutely agreed with this, but he said it might be possible for someone to lose their salvation. But Arminius gave this caveat, if a person ever did lose his or her salvation, he said that person could never be saved again. Mm -hmm. So if you give up your salvation, you can't be resaved. Now, this leads to the sixth view. John Wesley is a traditional Armenian through and through. But on this point, Wesley said, if you submit and give up your salvation, then God will let you back in. If you if you later decide, maybe you gave up your salvation, you lost your salvation, but you later say, hey, I really want to be saved after all, God will let you back in the kingdom. He'll let you back in the family, even after losing your salvation. The seventh view is open theism. This viewpoint uh, holds that uh, God doesn't know future events. 
So uh, he gives, so election isn't, he, he elects a corporate body, perhaps. Armenians believe this, Wesleyans believe this, but he doesn't elect individuals because he doesn't know who's going to receive. He has a good idea, maybe, but he really doesn't know in the future what's going to happen. And then you have the eighth view, which is Pelagianism, uh, which is uh, which is to say that uh, uh, God, uh, that a person saves him, him or herself um, through their actions. I think you can also even add the viewpoint of uh, Karl Barth. Uh, Karl Barth believed uh, that a uh, that Christ was the elect one, and that people, uh, whenever they respond to the grace of God, they enter into that elected family. Uh, so this whole idea of foreknowledge and stuff like that really doesn't play into Bardian theology as much as it does others. And so uh, just as a full caveat, uh, I identify more within the, the realm of the Molinist, Thomist, and Provisionist camps. Those are the three camps I identify with. I think Curtis has mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're more in the area of Provisionism and Wesleyanism. Would you agree with that, Curtis? Yeah, I would say I would say you could you could almost say soft provisionism and and maybe you know a little bit kind of dancing in that wesleyanism um yeah i I would say definitely with that and that just comes from uh i guess to to me really what that comes from is um seeing our own interactions as we're going through life and seeing people um really peaking an interest in God and then eventually turning towards that. Um, and just those types of things. I don't want to get into that cause we're getting pretty late, but, um, that, but that, that's kind of where I lean. Yeah, I would, I would definitely lean a little bit more there. And just so you know, Bellator Christie is open to a plethora of viewpoints in this perspective. Now, we are a non-Calvinist organization, and we have all of our members sign uh, an, an, a notice, a, a statement of faith indicating that they understand that when they join Bellator Christie, they're joining a non-Calvinist <laughs> denomination, uh, not a denomination, non-Calvinist organization is what I'm trying to say. Right. And uh, but so so we're not, we don't advocate the Calvinist perspective. But we also don't advocate the open theist and Pelagian viewpoints either because, right. I mean, I think I can speak for everyone on the team. I, I think we all have a problem with open theism and we all have a problem with, with Pelagianism. Yeah. Yeah. So, but from Thomism down to Wesleyanism and every, all points in between, we're kind of wide open at Bellator yeah. Christie, uh, yeah. but we are really a non-Calvinist uh, organization and again we love our brothers and sisters in the calvinist camp it's not that we're trying to attack anyone or anything but uh, but that's where we stand and that's why we're going to come at this from a non-calvinist perspective now curtis you also asked real quickly i know the late the night is getting very late and the podcast is slipping by us but let me give you a very brief outline for the soteriology series that lies ahead so coming up next week we're going to talk about predestination and election. Oh, you mean non-Calvinists believe in predestination and election? <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> but it's just not in the same sense that uh, that uh, many Cal- Calvinists advocate. We're also going to talk about, and uh, that's, that's the 12th episode. The 13th episode is going to talk about union with Christ. Uh, in the 14th episode, we're going to come back to this issue of justification, and we're going to dig in a little deeper what it means to be justified, what it means to be redeemed. The 15th episode, and now we're getting into January, uh, January, uh, the first week in January, we're going to talk about sanctification and growth. What does it mean to grow in Christ? What does it mean to be sanctified? In episode 16, we're going to talk about glorification, and here we might dabble in a little bit of eschatology. Because we're going to talk about what happens to us when we die, where we go, 
what happens to us. When we talk about glorification, we're talking about what happens to us after death. We talk about what ultimately happens to us. So we're going to talk about the intermediate state. We're talking about paradise. We're talking about the resurrection and the new creation. We're dabbling in a little bit of eschatology here, uh, but uh, we're really looking at it from a salvific perspective. The 17th episode is Adoption and Spiritual Family of God. We're going to come back to this entrance into the family of God. In the 18th episode, we're going to look at the different views on the means of salvation. We're going to come back to that whole idea of these different mediums and and dig into that a little bit more. Our 19th episode, getting into February here, uh, we're going to talk about the depravity of man. Is it total or is it radical? (laughs) You mean we kind of hold to that tulip just a little? You know, we we do believe that there's a sin problem. So, but is it total? Is it radical? It, how does that work? Mm -hmm. Uh, the 20th episode is the grace of God. Is it irresistible or resistible? We're going to dig into that. Uh, we're going to take a look in, um, on episode 21. We have a special guest coming in, uh, coming on the podcast with us talking about the corporate view of Romans 9 and how Romans 9 may not indicate individual election as we've been led to believe, but may have a different perspective. And we're bringing on a heavy hitter, one of my dissertation team members, Dr. Chad Thornhill. You will be blessed. (laughs) Just say that. If this works out the way I'm hoping it will. And then in our 22nd episode of the season, we're talking about the extent of salvation. Will everyone be saved? Is universalism correct? Limited atonement? We'll talk about all those different issues. Um, and then uh, we're going to, in our last episode of Soteriology, and this is, we're actually coming into March here of 2023, episode 23, we're going to have Dr. T.J. Gentry with us as he's going to talk about a book he has that really dabbles into the whole issue of soteriology a book he calls leaving calvinism finding grace so he's going to talk about why soteriology was important in shaping him into the person he is as he takes a very non-calvinist perspective so folks we have some great episodes on tap for you all the way from now until march and then after that we're dabbling into another theology series uh, before closing out the season with uh, an episode looking at uh, the dissertation and looking back at season six, we may even have, uh, we're not so we're not sure yet, may even have another special episode with uh, Curtis and Chris. Uh, we'll let you know more about that as, uh, as, as time progresses. But uh, we've got some great stuff ahead for us, for us uh, folks. And we hope that you come join us for every one of these episodes. Yeah. Yeah, and I was just gonna, I was gonna mention before I looked down that list and saw that that we are gonna be touching the total depravity. I I did want to mention that there are aspects of that of that tulip uh, that we do hold to as as oh yeah as in our in our aspects. I mean, the it's just that somebody come up with an acronym to put it into play for us. To all kind of be like, yeah, we we could see that. We can agree with that. Well, and the interesting thing is Norman Geiser, the late Norman Geiser, has even, in my in my opinion, successfully shown that Calvin may not have even been a Calvinist, according to that acronym. Uh, and so, I mean, this really came more out of the Senate of Dort, where they were where the uh, the people at uh, the the Dortian Calvinists were trying to condemn Arminians. Again, I'm not throwing stones. I'm just this is history, but our but but guys are even suggest that it might be that that Calvin would not have even been part of the Calvinist camp according to the strict the, the strict parameters of Tulip. But that's yeah. debatable. I mean, you know, and there may be people who hold a different perspective than that. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm sure looking forward to it, and I do I do pray for for grace in this and i pray for you know everybody to kind of just come to the table and and uh put out the ideas and understand this is this is all within the umbrella of christendom it's it's there's nothing that is um that's that that is under this umbrella that we're going to be talking about that would um 
remove us from uh, being a Christian. Are we? Am Absolutely. I correct there, Brian? Yeah, you're yeah. dead on the money, my friend. Yeah. So let's just end this here. And uh, but we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and has become a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, soldier on, friends. Soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evalo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristie.com.